We're kind of on a roll. We've been on a roll for the last few weeks and um, really trying to develop the theme of finding balance in our lives, finding balance in our prayer life, finding balance in our day-to-day lives for the purpose of being able to remain alert, to remain aware, to become fully (laughs) conscious, to really be able to be present to everyone, everything, and God's Spirit around us at any moment. Because things change when that happens. It's amazing how life changes when you just do the one thing, which is showing up to your moments and really being present in them. Stuff just happens that you have no idea is happening. You know? It's like showing up to an aerobic program and you get your heart rate up and you just work it and you don't know what's going on. It just hurts and you don't want to do it and you'd like to quit. But if you continue on and cross that threshold, then you start to see changes. You start to see changes in your body, changes in your stamina. And then you start to actually see meaning and purpose in the workouts and they start to become enjoyable and it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle in a positive direction. Presence is a lot like that. You won't see things happening right away, but stuff is happening underneath, and it'll start to come out in ways that you don't expect. I wish I could tell you that things would happen in your meditative or contemplative prayer sessions. I wish I could tell you that things would happen in real time that you could just grab a hold of and and, and have edges to hang on to, but it doesn't work that way. It's more of of a faith progression. But things are happening. And things will happen. And so it's just a matter of taking those first few steps, setting yourself on a course and moving through. And that's what we've been talking about. These last few weeks have been trying to establish the fact that Jesus' way is really a rite of passage. It's a progression. It's a way through that always begins with a stepping away from or a stripping away of all the things that we think we know. Letting those things go. Because those are the things that are blocking us. Whatever you think you know, you're not teachable in that area. It's when you don't know, or you know that you don't know, then things become possible. Or if you're not sure anymore that you know, that's the first crack that lets things become possible. And so this letting go of the things that we are so sure of, the things that have served us and and survived us this long, is the beginning of the rite of passage and the journey through to what we can call a spiritual awakening. But it has to be lived. We have to rededicate ourselves every day. It's not something you do once. It's not an event. It is a process. And it's not even a process that you do once. It's not like working the steps once. No, they're worked continually. But there is a spiral sort of, of progression to it. So each time we make the full circuit and come back to where we started... Like T.S. Eliot said, we know the place for the first time. We know something about ourselves. We have an insight that we didn't have before. And then we go again and again and again. This is life. It never ends. Life is motion. Motion is life. And spirit is motion. And motion is spirit. And so these things have this continuity to them. The circle dance of the Trinity that we've talked about. All these images thrown at us over 2,000 years in the Christian tradition trying to get these very points across. What does it look like? What does it feel like to go this way, to take this journey? Because you can't name it. 
You can't get a three-point, ten-point step process. We can have techniques that we're talking about, but that's not it. And so these last few weeks and through this Lenten season, what we're trying to do is to establish that way, hopefully to encourage you to establish a way, because one time a week is not going to be enough. It's you every day getting up and doing something that moves your particular ball forward. Something that helps you to take the next step and the one after that toward this balance. And it has to be a balance. A balance between the spiritual and the physical. We can't flop down one side or another. We have to live our lives in this world. But we do that with a spiritual awareness. So balancing that. A balance between the intellectual and the experiential. We can't figure this out. It has to be lived out. And yet, having a concept helps us to take the steps that we're going to take. And of course, a balance between the legal and the relational. Realizing that the legal relationship with God is for the group setting. But in the one-on-one micro setting, it's all about mercy and compassion. Balancing those two as well. And for the last few weeks and throughout Scripture, the Hebrew bride is the extended metaphor for what that balance looks like, what it looks like to live in kingdom between heaven and earth, between an immersion right here now and yet an anticipation uh, and an excitement about radical change that's coming between those worlds. And so her experience between betrothal and Wedding has been used by all of Israel, and Jesus uses it as well. The apostles use it, understanding the church is the bride of Christ, living in that betweenness. How do we live that betweenness? The liminal space that we have talked about in here before. Staying always in the middle, at the threshold, in the doorway. It's where all things are possible, where everything is moving through, rather than flopping down to one certain side or another which closes off any further motion, any further progression. So, the Sunday before Ash Wednesday, what we did was, we talked about Lent as it has been taught, typically, for any of those of you who uh, grew up in a liturgical church, as a time of penance, a time of sacrifice, giving something up for your sins. And we're going to turn that thing around and say, you know what, what we're going to do is actually take affirmative steps, affirmative action toward letting go of things that distract us from God, letting go of things that are distracting us from this moment. So yes, it's still a stripping away. That's what Lent has always been. But not in a negative legal sense. I'm doing this because I'm a sinner and I need to be punished. But doing it in a positive sense. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but my sin has separated me from the presence and the understanding of the presence of God in any given moment. And so I'm going to let go of the distractions so that I can get back into that presence. That was week one. Week two was to give ourselves this symbol of intent. Intention to stay alert, to stay ready, to stay conscious, to stay present. And that was the lighting of the candles, using that passage of the five foolish virgins and the five prudent ones, the ones who had oil in their lamps and were ready to go greet the bridegroom and light his way to his bride and those who are out of oil. So that was week two, last week. Now, actually week one of Lent. This is now the second Sunday of Lent. And so today we had our touchstones. The rocks will cry out, Jesus said, if nobody else praises. And I wanted to read that passage with you so that we can really place it 
This will be read again on Palm Sunday when Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And if you recall, this is the very beginning of Holy Week, the beginning of the Passion Week. Jesus returns to Jerusalem for the Passover, as was mandatory, uh, one of the three pilgrimage festivals of Judaism. But it begins the whole sequence of events that ends in the crucifixion on Friday. And as he goes in the gates to the city, the people are going wild. They are understanding him as a Messiah, but as a Messiah that they were waiting for. This Messiah who was going to be a political king and a warrior, who was going to blow out the Roman occupation and bring their country back into sovereignty, which would float all their boats. That's what they were looking for. And so, Hoshiana, which we translate as Hosanna, Lord, save us, save us, we beseech you, is what they are screaming. And they're holding out palm branches, which was the, the symbol, symbol of, a, of a king, symbol of, of any kind of authority in their lives. And as soon as he was approaching, this is Luke 19, verse 37, Near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. It's a great line. But what's he talking about? What does he really mean? Seems to me and seems to many scholars that he's talking about the fact that all creation points back to truth. All creation points back to the creator. All creation testifies to the truth. You can't stop it. It's kind of the harmonic structure of the universe. It's just there. Scientists have actually found a background, what would you call it, harmony? You know, there, there's this background music, they call it. It, it sounds really ghostly and really interesting, but it's, there's, a, there's a harmonic structure in and between all of the cosmic dust and everything that's going on out in the universe. The universe is literally singing praise back to the Creator. You can't stop it. If these fall silent, if you are able to force them to stop singing praise, these very stones are going to cry out. Jesus is telling us something really, 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 really important here. There is an unceasing quality to praise. There's an unceasing quality to prayer. I always remember the, uh, the lyric from Jesus Christ Superstar. Remember that? Why waste your breath moaning at the crowd? Nothing can be done to stop the shouting. If every tongue were still, the noise would still continue. The rocks and stones themselves would start to sing. And then they go into Hosanna, 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 Ho. You know, I love that line. He just, he captured it so well. That's it. We are part of something. We are part of this expression of creation. Are we going to sing? Are we going to move with it? Or are we going to stop? Are we going to cut ourselves off? This is what Jesus is asking us. This is what he's saying. But you know what? I think there might be another layer to this as well. In the very next passage from this, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem because he says, because you didn't know the hour of your visitation, not one stone will be left upon another in the Temple Mount. He's looking forward to the time when the Romans pull the Temple down because of the Jewish-Roman War. Because the Jews never understood that their Messiah was a spiritual Savior. 
not a physical savior. And they kept pushing and pushing until finally the powers that be tore their whole nation down. And Jesus is talking to the Pharisees here, the ones who get their power from the structure, from the form of Judaism as they have created it. Isn't, wouldn't it be interesting if he's also talking about the stones of the temple are actually crying out, your own traditions, your own temple system is testifying to the truth and you're not ready to hear it. It can work on two levels there. But Jesus is telling us something really, really important, illustrating the quality of unceasing praise, unceasing prayer, this testimony of truth. Prayer understood as actually saying or living something that is true. Living the truth is prayer. Speaking truth is prayer. And so, really, this is what we're doing here with these touchstones. To use them to reconnect, to use them as this tactile, physical way of diving back into what is really true. All the details of your life, the things that make you unhappy, the things that drive you crazy and give you anxiety and regret, those things are ephemeral. Those things are just passing through. There is a truth that never moves. There's a truth that is always true. And if we clear out the smoke and dust, all the debris in the aquarium water, what we get down to is that truth. And those touchstones, those rocks are to help you, just to remind you, take a breath, Look at this moment. What are you feeling? What is the swirl of emotions that are going on? And can you just come right back down to ground and find the connection, find the sense of well-being? This is what he's talking about here. This is where he's trying to get us. And this is what I'm hoping these stones will help you do. I was hoping they'd be a little smaller so you could put them in your pocket, but uh, they they got a little large there. And so this unceasing prayer, this testimony of truth, this is what we're talking about. To come back to an awareness of each moment of truth, this Lent consciousness, stripping away of distractions, is what we're trying to do. This call back to prayer now in our pockets, now in our purse, whatever it happens to be, is what Paul is really talking about. And if you take a look at 1 Thessalonians 5, this is a famous passage, 5, 16 to 18. For he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, pray without ceasing. I know we've talked about this before, but this is something that we really need to get clear on. How is that going to be balanced? How is it going to be balanced if you're praying without ceasing? Don't you have to work? Don't you have to deal with things? Don't you have to plan? Don't you have to go to school and study and do whatever it is that exists in the mix of your life? How in the world are you going to keep that prayer going unceasingly, this dialogue going on? Now, we've talked about prayer not as a mental exercise, but I think there's more here that Paul is showing us. Because notice, Paul doesn't give us just one directive. He gives us three directives. And in those three directives, in that context, we're starting to understand what it is he's trying to get across when he tells us about this unceasing prayer, this quality that we can enter into. And I wanted to read to you a little bit from a really good book. Um, It's by the monks of New Skidi, 
which is a Eastern Orthodox monastery, just celebrating their 50-year um, anniversary this year uh, up in upstate New York. But they wrote a book called In the Spirit of Happiness, which really talks about their beliefs as a monastic order, how they approach prayer and contemplative life and basically everything they do. I don't know if you've heard these guys before. They got really famous because they breed German shepherds. That, that is the work that they do that actually supports the monastery. And they've written, written several books about dog training and, and so on and so forth. And so they're, they're pretty famous. I think the Animal Planet just featured them in one of their shows about, they're kind of dog whisperers, you know. And uh, so that's fun. And then they have nuns attached to the order as well, and they make cheesecakes that are supposed to be really good, you know. But, uh, but it's interesting. They're a monastic order just like the ancient ones where you had to do something to support yourself. You know, praying all day is great, but it doesn't pay the bills. It doesn't keep the lights on, so what are you going to do? Well, the, the ones in Europe, they made liqueurs and wine and stuff. These guys are breeding dogs and making cheesecakes. Balance between the physical and the spiritual, it's all just coded into their life, you know? And um, so anyway, this book, In the Spirit of Happiness, is, is it got a chapter on this unceasing prayer. And they talk about this threefold directive of Paul and that if you take it out of context you're not going to get the balance that he's looking at now I put it in here in in your bulletins right underneath the Thessalonians quote so if you break it down the first one is be happy always greet everyone and everything openly and cheerfully even in adversity sing together joyfully okay so that is a way of just relating you know greet everyone and everything openly openly and cheerfully Are you doing that? Are you able to do that? When times get difficult, when you get annoyed, when things happen at work, can you still greet everyone openly and cheerfully? Or does that go away and you become Mr. Hyde? What's what's going on in your personality? But can we work on that? That's something that we can do. Even if we're not feeling it, we can still do it because if you do it, guess what happens later on? You start to actually feel it. It's just the way things work. Our emotions are going to follow our actions. Whatever emotion we get, we can't control, but they will follow our actions in a straight line if we persist long enough. Then pray without ceasing. Don't forget to pray. Be open to God's presence. Don't stop praying together just because difficulties arise or when everything's fine. Pay attention and avoid distraction. This is the alertness we're talking about. Not just keeping an inner dialogue going or a verbal dialogue going, but coming back to ground, coming right back. If you have to plan and think about past or future, do whatever you need to do and then come right back as soon as that task is done. Keep coming back. Avoid the distractions that keep us spinning and never allow us to be present. Then, be grateful in all circumstances. Be generous and appreciative. Find something positive. Even during reversals and setbacks, display your unity and heal your divisions by giving thanks in prayer. This is it. Prayer and attitude. In, in a very real way, what Paul is saying is that your cheerfulness, your sense of well-being, your joy, and your gratefulness gratitude. If those things are present, your prayer is real. Your prayer is ongoing. How do you know if you're praying unceasingly? Are you cheerful? Are you grateful? Are you able to greet everyone 
the way John greets us all every morning. Can you do that? Your prayer is real. The three together are what are really giving us the context. I wanted to read to you a little bit more. They say, Paul isn't just recommending a basic prescription here. Much more profoundly, he's exhorting his readers to an attitude, a frame of mind, a way of being that's outgoing no matter how discouraged they might happen to be, a habitual, unfailing spirit of joyful openness, being consciously, constantly conscious, like that, consciously, constantly conscious of the presence of God amidst the changing complexion of everyday life. This is what unceasing prayer means, not saying prayers continually. As we grow up, we learn to respond creatively with faithful trust in the presence of God in the most difficult of human circumstances. Tragedies, disagreements, even moments of ennui. Ennui? You know that good French word? French word? (laughs) Yeah. Angst, discontented boredom, you know, when you just get into that funk. You know, can you still do this then? Is that possible? We'll manifest the constant prayerful direction that doesn't flinch in the face of doubt, darkness, despair, or even death. A constant, persistent, and pervasive attitude of prayer is precisely what the Psalms demonstrate for us. That's why we love reading the Psalms. They're so emotional. They take us right to that human place. David doesn't hold anything back. He tells us exactly what's going on. He's completely transparent. The Psalms can do this in part because of their simple humanity, their direct response to every human situation imaginable. Believers as well as unbelievers instinctively relate to the concrete situations these hymns describe and interpret. If we read them with an open and attentive mind, their striking and colorful words can help us to understand the essence of Scripture, what loving God actually means. Before all else, it means offering the whole of our experience to him. Joy, sadness, anger, suffering, desires, frustrations, hiding nothing from him, even our deepest thoughts. This is what prayer is. Now we started that sentence with offering the whole of our spirit experience. A little bit of church jargon there, I think, you know, and I, I try to get away from that. I don't know what that means to you. It, meant, it, it always brings up something to me as a recovering Catholic um, But how about the idea of sharing our experiences, seeing purpose in our experiences, not holding anything back, allowing ourselves to be completely transparent, not resisting even the difficult experiences, letting them play through our lives and engaging in them anyway, offering, sharing, not resisting the whole of our experience, sharing it with God. The Psalms reveal the inner disposition, drama, and dynamism of prayer in those who live in communion with God through the turbulence of everyday life, who in spite of this turbulence strive to do everything in a manner that pleases God. Now there's another one, pleasing God. That can have a legal connotation. We please God, we do what God likes, and then God is going to give us the reward over here. That's really not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is doing things as God would do them. It's that simple. Are we flowing with the direction of God's Spirit? Have we learned enough about God's essence to know what that is and actually to want to repeat it, recreate it in our lives? Yeah, that's pleasing to God. 
But we're not pleasing him in order to get a reward. We're pleasing him is because that's who we are becoming. We are spending enough conscious present time to really know who our Father is. And that's really good news. And once you get the good news, you want to start repeating it and giving it to others. So prayer, understood this way, is engaging our whole experience in an awareness of well-being and gratitude. Taking everything that we are doing, everything that we are in any given moment, and immersing in it in such a way that we feel the connection point. We feel the well-being that comes from that connection. And we feel the gratitude for having the ability to have that connection. You know, it's just participation. Simple participation that does it. When you feel that smile kind of spreading across your face, you didn't even give it permission. You just sort of feel it coming. Whatever it was that you connected with that created that smile, that's a form of prayer. That's that experience of exactly what we're talking about, that kingdom moment. You know, John texted me actually Friday night, but I didn't get it till Saturday morning. And he said, you need to go out and look at the moon. It's got a big circle around it. Did anybody see the circle around the moon on Friday night? Yeah. He was all excited about the circle. So, you know, I know John well enough. I could just see him out in the backyard just looking up. You know, just head cocked like that, looking at, wow, look at the moon. Smile on the face. Can we enter into simple things like that? Just seeing the moon that takes us to that place? You've got to be prepared for that. How many times do you just zoom past the moon and you sort of know it's there? You don't even give it a second glance. You don't give it a second thought. It moves you not. But to stop and to see it for a second and to see how incredible it is, that's a prayer. Saturday morning, I was sitting there and I was actually reading this book and I was starting to, to prep for this morning and uh, our dogs come waddling through. Actually, the big fat pug waddles. The other little chewiesel doesn't. But anyway, they come through and they're walking by and the, the tags are jingling and I'm just watching them and you know, they're kind of snorting and sniffing and, and they go this way and then they go that way and then they go this way again and I'm just watching these quadrupeds walk back and forth and I'm thinking, how cool is that? How do they make their decisions? I'm going to go this way. No, I'm going to go this way. It's just like, is there anything? What's, you know, in the pug, I know there's probably nothing going on up there. You know, the little one is smarter, but I was just, it's just, and I, I hear, I, and I'm smiling. I'm sitting there smiling at these dogs, and it was just the, <laughs> the weirdest thing. Um, I uh, went to a meeting uh, mid last week and a friend who's a neighbor of ours now, we just moved in San Clemente and she just lives a few doors down. And she was talking that there's a trailhead right up the street that'll take you all the way up to the water tower up at the top of the hill in San Clemente. And she loves taking that walk. And since there's been so much rain, these ponds that are up there now have standing water in them. And so she took her little grandson up there because there's pollywogs in the ponds, you see. And they brought a fish net and they brought a little bowl and they were catching pollywogs. And little little guy was just so excited. He could barely contain himself. You know, he's jumping up and down. But she said the coolest thing was that all the adults that were walking by, they got into it too. And they had to come and look and they're looking at the pollywogs and they're all talking about it. And they want to bring this person back and that person. So there's this whole party around the pollywogs. 
that was catch and release. They did let the polywogs go, and for any of you that. And then she said when she was walking back down, the sunset that night was just incredible, and the view of the whole ocean and the sun setting into it just took her breath away. I know she was smiling through that whole thing, you know. That's a prayer. How about when you show up here on a Sunday morning? You see a friend that you haven't seen for maybe a week, you know, and that smile spreads across your face and you give the hug and then you smell the bagels toasting and the smile comes back even bigger, you know. All of these things that are so mundane, so seemingly insignificant, can we stop for a second and find, and just think about what is really going on here? How great is it to come to a place where everybody knows your name? How great is it to be greeted? How great is it to feel a belonging, a sense of place? You know, this is the most basic human thing. That's why the ancients were always so tied to the land. The land was everything. The land gave them sustenance. They understood dust you are and to dust you will return. You come from the land and you return to the land. The land is everything. To have a place to stand and live richly was everything to the ancient peoples. It's what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the meek or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. To inherit the earth, we think of deeds and possession. No, it has nothing to do with that. It's having a place to stand, a place that is yours, a place where your family can live and raise livestock and raise crops and survive. Without that, you're dead. To have a place to stand is survival. And that's what we've got. We've got that in our homes. We've got that here. We've got that at our work. We've got places that we are accepted, places where we belong. And when we go there, if we allow ourselves, we can see exactly what is going on here. We can see how all of this connects and connects us and can move us into this place of more continual prayer. It feels good to belong. It feels good. If you are experiencing these things, do they bring you gratitude? Do you feel grateful at moments like this? Do you feel that sense of connection and well-being? If you don't, then you've missed your opportunity for prayer. But if you do, and you start cataloging, marking the times when the smile starts spreading across your face, what you realize is you're moving into more and more this prayer, the gratitude, the happiness that Paul says is, I suppose, the source and the destination of your unceasing prayer. It's the beginning and the end. It's the whole enchilada. It's everything. So does that mean we've got to wait for moons and dogs and polywogs and bagels in order to pray? Of course not. But the question then remains, how do we strip strip away the distractions that are keeping us from having this kind of experience in all of our day-to-day life and everything that happens moment by moment? This is where the balance comes in. This is where we're going to have to put forth some effort, put forth some discipline. Between the immersion in the moments that can sometimes just happen to us uh, without even our permission, We're now going to need to balance that with discipline and with structure. The balance between 
All types of prayer. There's so many different types of prayer. There's liturgical prayer for those of you who have experienced the Mass and experienced different forms of liturgy. And there's formal prayer. There's group prayer. There's personal prayer. And then just the experiential prayer that we're talking about. Can we balance all those forms of prayer? Can we bring them into some kind of focus? Being disciplined about formal prayer, both group prayer, liturgical prayer, personal prayer that you set up, your own personal devotions, that can build a structure for you, a day-to-day structure, a house of prayer, if you will, within which we can start to build up our own prayer muscles. And it's like building up muscle. It's exactly the same. This stuff doesn't happen overnight. You can't just think it, get it, and then it's done. It's something that you have to do over and over again until it gets into muscle memory to build up our prayer muscles, the muscles of consciousness, if you will, muscles of awareness that is our prayer. And with the muscles toned, toning them in our house of prayer, whatever structure we set up for ourselves, whatever structure is set up around us by the groups that we maintain, we start to develop the strength and the stamina to pray unceasingly, to pray and to bring awareness increasingly into everything that we do. Jesus exemplifies this in his lifestyle. If you really think about all the details of Scripture that are there, first of all, he's a good Jew. He never misses what he's supposed to do as a Jew, traditionally, liturgically, ritually. Every single one of those three pilgrimage festivals, he was there. He even went to Jerusalem and to the temple at that last Passover when everyone was begging him not to because they knew what was going to happen. They knew the temperature and, and the opposition that he was facing. He knew it as well. But he didn't miss going. And we see him in synagogue over and over again doing exactly what he's supposed to do liturgically as part of a group, being a good Jew. But he's balancing that constantly with times where he gets out of Dodge, he gets out of town, he goes to the wilderness, he goes to the desert, and he prays by himself. Ministry, personal prayer, alone, solitude, silence, liturgical prayer, you see him balancing all these things. It's a perfect balance. This is what the scriptures are showing us if we have eyes to see, if we have ears to hear. I wanted to read you just a little bit more from the, the book, Spirit of Happiness, dealing with this issue. Jesus himself, as a first century Jew, was raised in this same spirit of prayer, as the Gospels show us. His life opens up for us the meaning of unceasing prayer. Jesus knew the value of both liturgical prayer and private prayer, but he hardly walked around mumbling prayers all the time. Like the prophets, he openly criticizes those who multiply their prayers instead of fostering, fostering the requisite interior attitude. And you can follow along here at Matthew 6. I'm going to read their translation because it's kind of interesting. And then when you pray, he says, don't be like the play actors. Now you've got hypocrites there, which is the normal translation. But you know what a hypocrite originally was? They were the Greek actors they put on a mask. Every Greek actor would put on a mask. And so the, the hypocrite was the play actor who put on the mask and played someone else other than themselves. So play actor, I think, is an even better translation. Don't be like the play actors. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners so that people may see them at it. Believe me, they have had all the reward they're going to get. 
But when you pray, go into your own room, shut your door, pray to your Father privately. Your Father who sees all private things will reward you. And when you pray, don't rattle off long prayers like the pagans who think they will be heard because they use so many words. Don't be like them. After all, God who is your Father knows your needs before you ask him. Jesus is one in whom we see the balance, the integration of the inner and the outer, the sacred and the secular, while teaching the importance of both formal liturgical participation in prayer in sol- and by teaching both the importance of formal liturgical participation and prayer in solitude, he demonstrates that the scope of his spirit of prayer extends far beyond these to embrace the whole of his daily experience. Amidst the demands of his public ministry, Jesus is perpetually prayerful in a manner appropriate to whatever life brings before him. His whole life is a prayer because he is always conscious of the Heavenly Father in whose presence he lives. He is never not praying. Yet most people observing him might never have suspected this. Through the contents of his everyday life, he becomes prayer, though in a manner entirely in harmony with his human nature. Every act and gesture, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is a movement of adoration, an offering of prayer. Our human reality is what we bring to God, our very means to God. If, like Jesus, we are to become a living prayer, it cannot be in a purely quantitative way, by futilely multiplying prayer upon prayer for the rest of our lives. We can only be faithful to the mandate to unceasing prayer when we seek it qualitatively, by reverently listening and discerning the presence of God in every situation in life, by conforming our hearts and minds and behavior with the words and attitudes we articulate in prayer, and by embracing our whole life and presenting it as a gift to God. That's it. It's the way we live. It's the how, not the what, that makes the prayer. Now, a life of prayer for us usually starts in community. It's easier in community. It's easier to have like minds around us and people who are doing the same thing. Any of you ever uh, bicycle in groups? Has anyone ever done that before? You know? It's interesting because what you'll do is you will have the lead position. That's the one who gets all the wind resistance. And so you want to draft, you want to come in right behind and put your front wheel right off their back wheel and then hunker down and get in their wind shadow is basically what's happening. So, and then when they tire out, then you switch places and you keep doing that. So someone is drafting after the lead person and breaking the wind resistance. This is what it's kind of like trying to do something like this that is so difficult that's going to have so much wind resistance on us to do it in a group setting where people can be with us, they can draft along with us. That's really what we're trying to do here. And people say sometimes, I hear them, don't really need church. You know, surfing is my church. The woods are my church. You know, the mountains, the sea, you know, those are my church. The moon is my church, whatever. And church is corrupt. Church is full of hypocrites anyway. You know, and that's sometimes true. Church is corrupt and can be corrupt and can be hypocritical and all those horrible things. But if you say that you don't need church, what is it that you are actually doing? 
Is there anything there? Is there any discipline or structure in your life that is replacing church? Because most often, a statement like that is an excuse for not doing anything at all. And there is no discipline. There is no structure. Church, when done well, can provide the structure. Even church done poorly can still provide the structure. We bring our intent to an imperfect structure, and it's still perfected for us. We can still have great relationships within that imperfect structure. Church and religion performs that function for us. It gives us the structure that we need, the, the, the ability to draft after others who are leading us and have gone this way before. And it brings us in in a way that is some difficult sometimes. We've talked about this before. There are five things that you need in life in order to be able to navigate any rite of passage. And that's a community, but community with accountability. That means you're just not a wallflower in your community. You're actually immersed enough. You know people enough, and they know you well enough to be able to hold each other accountable. Community, accountability, structure, but not just having the structure, actually being disciplined to the structure, showing up day by day and living it. Structure, discipline, and service. With those five things in hand, we can take these rites of passages. We can take these heroes' journey. We can follow Jesus' way, but we need to have them in some shape or form in the communities in which we are part. That can be our families, our works, our churches, our program groups. It can be anything, but it's got to be there. Make no mistake, if those five elements are not in your life, the chances are is you are not moving down this path. You want to, but it's not happening. And so to be able to do this within a church community is really important. You ever been to a retreat? Weekend retreats, Friday night to Sunday um, noon, right? You know, and you have sometimes these great experiences, these, these major revelations and awakenings, and you just think, oh man, I'm a changed person. This changed my life. Hear that by Sunday afternoon. It's changed my life. Get out a few days when you get home, and it's all gone. What happened? And the retreat, everything was structured. Everything was disciplined. It was there for you. This is when you eat. This is when you pray. This is when you go to group. This is when you go and, and see your spiritual direct. Everything is laid out for you. And you're actually following the plan. And it feels really good. And you take this time out away from your life to go be structured and disciplined and of service in some way possibly as well. You get home and all the structure falls flat. For those of you in recovery, treatment is the same way. All this structure for you, all this discipline. But if you haven't built the house within the house, the structure within the structure, when that ends, when you're discharged, it all falls flat. It's the same thing. We need to build our own structure that will continue on in and between church or other structured group events. We've got to be doing this ourselves. And so the question then becomes, how do we create our own structure? How do we create our own discipline between these formal times of prayer? One last passage from the book. One of the techniques they used in writing this book was that they had a fictional seeker, a, uh, a young man who was thinking about joining the monastic order, and they do these series of dialogues, kind of role plays, throughout the book to try to illustrate what's going on. He's asking this same question. The seeker remembered asking Father Lawrence one day, Abba, they call their elders Abba, 
When we last talked, we were talking about St. Paul's injunction to pray without ceasing, but to be honest, I'm stymied. How's one supposed to do that? When I try to pray always, I'm doing the very thing you say we shouldn't do, which is attempting to repeat verbal prayers. Then when I don't say prayers, I feel like I'm not praying at all. What can I do about this? There's a paradox, all right, Father said. But it's really not the impossibility you're suggesting. What we really are looking for is to live in a state of prayer. A state of prayer? That's right. Being in a state of prayer involves living in such a manner that regardless of what we might be doing, we're always praying. Yes, but what do you mean by that? How do I get to that? Well, for starters, this has nothing to do with feelings. It's a question of awareness, something that's present regardless of what we're feeling, but it would also seem to require more than that. What makes all the difference, I believe, is the intention to please God. In addition to the consciousness of being in God's presence, were we to have the constant willingness always and everywhere to do what is pleasing to God, then such an attitude would constitute a state of prayerfulness. Yeah, but I don't see how that translates into actual practice. I mean, my problem is that when I'm busy living, I seem to forget God's presence. And then when I'm trying to change that, it seems to take me into the direction of saying prayers all the time, like repeating the Jesus prayer. You have to remember that the state of being I'm talking about has nothing directly to do with an act. For example, By simply uttering a series of prayers, that doesn't constitute a state of prayerfulness. Your mind could be a million miles away. Prayerfulness is a condition we bring about in ourselves that is correct climate for any individual acts of prayer. And in fact, for everything else we do. This can seem subtle, but it's not just word games. It means recognizing that we're not always thinking about everything that we're conscious of. Take yourself right now. You know you have two feet, but you weren't actually thinking about them before I mentioned them. In a similar way, we can become increasingly conscious conscious of being in God's presence in spite of the fact that we're not always thinking thoughts about him. That is so important to understand. Awareness is not thinking about a thing. Awareness is not having the words going on. I'm looking at polywogs now. Isn't that cool? You know, look at that dog. You know, how does it even have enough energy to keep its arms and legs going. I'm not thinking those things. I'm aware of them. They're washing over me, but I'm not thinking about them. It's an important distinction to be able to make. But we will think of God often, nevertheless, and the more we do think of him, the more likely we'll also become aware of how we should better conduct our living. A very good way to do this is by consciously associating elements of our daily experience with the presence of God allowing them to remind us of it. When we do this over time, they will not only sustain our consciousness of being in God's presence, but actually strengthen our determination to live in a way that pleases him. That's your stones, associating the stone with coming back into presence, letting go of the distractions. Stone really doesn't have anything to do with your awareness. It's an association we make so that every time you touch it, see it, it brings you back. For example... Let's say a secretary works in an office where phone calls come in rapidly, one after another. What if she were to associate each ring of the phone with being conscious of being in God's presence? Now, initially, this will obviously require deliberate work on her part. But as she perseveres in doing it, 
the practice will become more and more a habit. Eventually, every time the phone rings, or any bell for that matter, she'll be reminded of being in God's presence. In the context of a busy office where phones ring frequently, being and remaining in God's presence will gradually become the habitual state that the secretary lives in and which spurs her to always give her best and which in no way interferes with her work. In a way, the process can be likened to repeatedly placing a drop of red ink into a pail of clear water. At first, the red color won't be perceptible. But over time, should the process continue, the steady addition of drops will change the color of the clear water to red. In fact, the point will come in which there won't be a perceptible distinction between the water in the pail and the ink in its container. The way in which we mindfully and deliberately form the habit of being conscious of being in the presence of God, the way it gradually begins to color our whole life, is a process very much like that. And so, if in the course of consciously building this habit, building these muscles of being in the presence of God, we add as well the habit, habitual intention of pleasing God in all things, then no matter what we might be doing or thinking about, it becomes an act of prayer, simply because we're performing these acts in a prayerful state. Now, I don't know how that seems to you, Maybe it seems kind of artificial. Maybe even it seems juvenile to do some of these things that he's talking about. Maybe, I don't know how the stones seem to you. And the truth is, in themselves, they are insignificant. They are, I suppose, juvenile. But it's all about your intention. The intention you bring to an even insignificant act sanctifies it, makes it holy in the true meaning of what holy means, To be holy means to be set aside. It means to be dedicated to. That's what we're doing with our moments. We're setting them aside. We're clearing the space. We're opening them up. Now, you might think that pastors and church leaders have an advantage over the rest of you because, hey, it's our job to live this stuff, right? (laughs) Nothing can be further from the truth. Studies have shown that a majority of pastors in the United States pray less than pretty much anybody else. It's, it's, like, it's like what always happens when you make a job out of something. You know, for people in the program, working in recovery is not the same as working a program. And if you don't understand the difference between those two, you're going to end up in relapse. It is not the same thing. And working in church is not the same as unceasing prayer. Even if we devote a lot of our time to these formal trappings, and the things that we we do and, and we present, it's not the same. The process is very different. Nobody is exempt, not any one of us. If we don't rededicate ourselves every single day to coming back into this place of presence, to drop that red ink into the pail, to touch the stone, to hear the bell, whatever it is that we have set for ourselves, we will roll off the rails in no time whatsoever. Every single one of us needs to do this. Every single one of us has to go through this process. And how do we know we're doing it? How do we know that we're actually getting someplace? Look at your gratitude level. Look at your sense of well-being. Are you able to deal with difficult circumstances and situations and personalities with a lot more grace, with a lot more poise, with the ability to continue to cheerfully greet people regardless of what is going on in the background? 
to have that sense of gratefulness that you still have a place to stand, even if the place is chaotic right now and kind of sucks, can you still feel that gratitude? Then your prayer moves on through. It is not being interrupted by all these changes, these vicissitudes of life. This is how we know what we're doing. These last three Sundays, you can see where we're trying to build The first Sunday was to give you some techniques. The flyers that you got, and if you didn't get them and you still want them, there might be some on the back tables, or just go to our website at the articles page. The flyer on mindfulness exercises that we can do all day long, on centering prayer and the guide for doing that, something you can do offline. gave you some techniques, some things that you can actually physically do that can move you along if you're willing to get up and do them on a day-to-day basis. Last week to light the candle as a symbol of our intent to do just that, to put something in place, something in practice for this 40-day period leading up to Easter. And to see where that leads us. Does that give us the foundation, the springboard, to continue on past Easter? Because this all doesn't end at Easter. And then this week, the touchstones of remembrance, to have something to actually physically continue to bring us back, associate with presence. Building this structure, building this discipline is the only way. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, he's telling us a deep truth here, but it's not the one we normally think of. He's telling us this way of constantly bringing ourselves back to presence, of stripping away the distractions in our life, is the only way that we will meet this Father and know the truth of his unfailing love that will finally liberate us from the fear of that we all face as human beings. This is it. This is how the gospel works. This is how good news is good. But we need to participate in the journey. It isn't just dropped on us. As a pastor once told me, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He will not violate whatever you have set up, but he will enter in when invited. And that's what we're doing. Let's all pray. Father, thank you so much for this, Lord. Thank you for everything that you've given us. Most importantly, thank you for this liturgical season that is set to remind us of where we're going. Thank you for new life around every corner and help us to find in ourselves what we need to do to completely embrace it. Thank you for embracing us first. We can only love or do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.